You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people, mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 413. I'm your host, Andres Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey, son, hey, son, guys! How are things? Good, good. <laughs> How are things? Good, good, good. Here There'll be well. carnival in Germany soon. Carnival? What <laughs> kind wow, of carnival? Oh, carnelevare. It's um, um, yeah. leaving the meat behind. Yeah, bye-bye meat. <laughs> Going to Lent. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. No, but like, yeah, we're, we're all dressing up in wonderful costumes and we'll send away the winter. <laughs> yeah, and all go <laughs> vegan. Good, good for you. Yes, until Easter. Mm. Oh, very good. <laughs> That's very what we good. do. Very Not good. really, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, going vegan. And it's it's really, really warm. The weather is really warm in this part of Europe at the moment. Oh, I don't know about it? your countries. No. But um, yeah, uh, tomorrow the forecast is about 15 to 17 degrees. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> where where I'm staying, so it's uh, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, never mind, but I hope everyone is in good health. I am, I am, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> okay, because uh, there is someone that we talk a lot about, and it's been all over the news lately that King Charles the Third of the United Kingdom was recently diagnosed with cancer. Chuck. And, um, yeah, the exact type of cancer has not been revealed yet, but the royal surgeon assures everyone that it was caught early. I'm very happy to hear that. And another thing we know is that it is completely unrelated, at least this is what they say, to his previous hospital visits, which were about um, the treatment of his enlarged prostate. Well, in the, in his age, it's completely normal to have that. I mean, at least usual, if not normal. But um, yeah. So why yeah. are we talking about this here and now? <laughs> yeah, because we're not really fans of, of Charles III, really. Exactly. But we we are not dickheads. So as fellow Europeans, we wish the monarch well and hope he sees a full and speedy recovery. Thankfully for him, he has all the top medical professionals at his service. Um, so he shouldn't have much to worry about. But we know one thing. He's really into all kinds of woo and quackery. So mm-hmm. I just hope that this time he realizes when it's it's your life, what's at stake. You need real medicine and yeah. not some mumbo jumbo yes. that he, he usually promotes, right? Yeah. Didn't you point a, a chief a homeopath or something not too long ago? I hope yeah. he's not listening yeah, to yeah. that guy. Yeah. Well, yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> he, he's not that dumb. So I'm, I mean, he sometimes comes across as such, but I'm pretty sure when it comes to his own life, um, he's, he's not that dumb. I'm not sure that Edzard Ernst would agree with that, <laughs> who's the king's greatest opponent and has been <laughs> since their, uh, their clashes started probably two decades ago already. But even he shows that the skeptical movement has a human face as well. So we are all humans. We are not bad people. So he published his well wishes to his majesty too. Um, yes. So yeah, this will be a real trial of the king's beliefs, I believe. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hope he makes the right calls and, and listens to the people who know their shit and not not quacks. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, I need to do a quick update about something else. Uh, mm-hmm. Our Swedish mm-hmm. astronaut that I have been talking about for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. now, Markus Vant. And uh, because a real cool thing happened. You all remember, I believe, uh, Philippe Blanchon from the ESC in Vienna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's mm-hmm. the Swedish school teacher who had a talk there, and he was also appointed, before that, he was appointed Swedish Teacher of the Year 2020, and he is active in VOF, the Swedish Skeptics. He did something really cool because he managed to get a live link with the ISS between Marcus Van wow. and his uh, students at school. So all the students at his school could talk live with Markus Vant directly from the ISS. So that that's really well done. That's I think that was the only school in Sweden that that did that. And so a big shout out to Philip. Very well done. Very cool. And th- that is a, such a cool guy. And and he's a Canadian. And he recently gave a TED talk in Montreal. Yeah, it was a TEDx talk. I think a TED TEDx, yeah, yeah, but still, yeah, yeah, still, it's, it's still a big yeah. thing. So it is, it is a big thing. 
So that's the kind of people you meet yeah. if you go to the European Skeptics Congress. So please don't forget to sign up for Lyon in France. Oh, exactly. End of May, early June this year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will. We put that link in the show notes as well. But I, I have one more thing to say about Marcus Vant because. He's now spent more time on the ISS than he was scheduled to do. He's been there more than two weeks, and that was uh, the schedule from the beginning. As we record this, his return to Earth has been postponed not just once, but twice due to bad weather conditions. Of course, not weather conditions in space. Uh, not space weather conditions, but in <laughs> back down off the coast of Florida, where the capsule. Do you still say it? A capsule. It's a capsule. This spacecraft. This dragon a spacecraft. Capsule? I don't know. It's going to splash yeah, down. Yeah, I think the dragon comes back. Yeah, it comes back as a as a capsule. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so it will splash down out, uh, very close to Florida eventually, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So I, I read up a little bit on how that works because the thing what struck me a little bit is as soon as the four astronauts are going back down again as soon as they close the door they've gone over to the dragon capsule and they close the door it detaches automatically so no time to go back mm. for your toothbrush at that point you if you if you close the door you're off you're going back home too late to do anything about it and then it will take after that it will take a, all everything between 9 and 24 hours to get back down to earth depending i guess on where they are when they undock from the ISS and the spacecraft, of course, will fire a series of burns to slow it down, and then it'll enter the atmosphere, and then there will be parachutes and the splashy, splashy thing, and very exciting. I, I hope, of course, everything goes well, and I hope the weather clears up in Florida so they can do it soon. Yeah. Sounds exciting. And now uh, it's really amazing how they can do that. And you cannot say that it ain't rocket science, because it is. It is <laughs> rocket science, and it's amazing. And the the fact that that angle and speed that they approach and they enter the atmosphere is very crucial because if those bursts that you you mentioned, if mm. they are on for too long, they are too large bursts, then they can slow the spacecraft that the capsule down to such a low speed that it will have a very steep angle going down. But if it it doesn't happen and the angle is not large enough, then it can bounce back into space yeah. as it hits the atmosphere. So it requires so precise calculations that it's it's just amazing that it's even possible to pull off. Yeah. Um, Sca- scarier to think about, really. But uh, it's yeah, been done yeah. many times, of course. Not uh, Dragon Capture exactly. is not that it's a bit newish, but it's been done many times over the years with other yeah, yeah, yeah. spacecraft. It's not a newcomer anymore. <laughs> so it's, no. it's not new to the party. It's been there for a couple of years already. And uh, But I was wondering, when, when you mentioned poor weather conditions uh, that prevented him from returning, um, yeah. I was wondering if it has anything to do with the fact that it's in Florida where they they are supposed to land. Because that's where hurricanes and all that happen all the time. And yeah. did you hear that the hurricane wind scale is being updated and at least it has oh been proposed God. from now so on? So they're going to crank it up to 11 now, like... <laughs> no, not 11, but yeah. so far it has been a scale of 1 to 5. And now it seems that they're going to have to upscale a bit and actually make up a new category of category 6. Yeah. Because the energy, the amount of energy and the wind speeds that this whole scale is based on can way exceed previously known top wind speeds. So that is so scary. (laughs) Yeah, we had a related news thing happening in Sweden, I think it was last week, where we had a new record, both in Norway and in Sweden, I think the wind went up to over 50, sorry, is it meter Per second or is it i think it's meter per second anyway it was more oh. than ever happened before and uh, it's all part of climate crisis climate change because we feed there's so much energy in the weather or in the yes. climate system at mm-hmm. the moment and it's just increasing so um all of these things are happening scary yes yeah, it is scary. Yeah. But at least we have a way of understanding. We have, yeah, we have means to study them with and to understand the whole thing. Well, we can always adjust the scale on the, on the, 
hurricane <laughs> meter, <laughs> but everything. I don't know if we're doing much more than that. We're not doing enough. All right, before we yeah, go into the to the rest of the show, we had some listener feedback that I should mention as well. It's always nice to hear Which from we people always love. out there. Yeah, we do. Irvin from Ireland sent us a mail regarding the situation with measles that we talked about last week. And we talked specifically about the UK. We mentioned Europe. But Irvin is saying that there is a big fear that Ireland is heading into the, in the same direction, of course, because every country does that. Vaccination rates have dropped dramatically since before COVID. And it's now around, if we talk about measles vaccinations, are now around 86, 87%. And we should remember that 95% is what we are aiming for. If you're below 95%, you have a big risk of outbreaks. And that is what the Irish Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, told his cabinet colleagues today, actually, as we record it on the 6th of February. He said that there is a high likelihood of a measles outbreak in Ireland over the next coming months. So um, we will see. Hope, hopefully he's wrong, but it wouldn't be strange if it happens. And I think it's the case all over the world, actually. Yeah. yeah. So it's there is a high probability of that happening, and um, and it's plausible. I mean, without the, the necessary level of vaccination, it's just bound to happen. Yeah. But thanks a lot to Irvin for contacting us at info at the esp.eu where anyone else can contact us and uh, we are always happy to hear from uh, our listeners if you just give us feedback that's lovely as well we we love that um please if you want to do that especially if it's a positive feedback that comes with a five star rating then uh, <laughs> go to any of the podcast sharing applications please uh yes. either itunes or it's not itunes anymore it's uh, apple podcasts google podcasts is a little funny these days so probably not a good idea to go there uh, but spotify is great and amazon music is great as well so go on and leave a review a rating as well please preferably a five star but you can help us in other ways as well one of them is letting us know what's happening in your countries because we don't speak all the languages that are necessary to cover everything that's happening in europe but if you let us know then we will know about it and we can share it with others and um, that's one way the other way is that you can support our work mm -hmm. that comes with uh, expenses as well yes of course i mean we're doing this for free we're delivering this for free but it isn't free to produce so mm -hmm. if you want to help us to do this, to continue with the show, you could go to patreon.com slash the ESP and see if you can chip in a little bit every month. That, that would be very much appreciated. Yeah. Or on the website, you can find our PayPal button as well, where you can leave a, a donation, a one-time one-off donation as well. But uh, let's see why we're here and what we are here to produce, which is a yes. show for our listeners. And as usual, we will start with Twish, a.k.a. This Week in Skeptical History. All right. This week, we are commemorating a great historical figure, yet again based on the person's date of death, which wow. might seem like a, a weird pattern now after last week, but <laughs> don't worry. It's the person itself and his achievements that I thought might be worth talking about. So, the 8th of February marks the 299th anniversary of the death of one of the greatest Russian historical figures ever to have lived. I'm, of course, talking about Peter the Great, mm. also known as Pyotr Pervy Alexeyevich, Tsar and later Emperor of all Russia. He was a very, very controversial character, lived in the most exciting times of Russia. Well, those exciting times were mostly brought about by his own doings, like a, he was prime mover of things in the country for decades. He was the ruler who took the country from the Middle Ages straight to a radical form of enlightenment. He was 10 years old when he was crowned the Tsar of Russia, and growing up, he became quite a bit of a polymath. There was hardly a thing that he didn't show an interest in. Even though he waged wars against all his powerful neighbours, the Ottoman Empire and the Swedish Empire as well, kicking their Ooh. asses 
I, I, I think that's been eventually, exaggerated. Eventually, it happened. It did happen. At the beginning, it didn't go th- that well. Yeah, but uh, look what he did. Now we have been forced to join NATO just because yeah, of that. Yeah, because of that. Uh, but the Swedish Empire back then was one of the greatest military powers of Europe. And mm. people feared the Swedish Empire. So, yeah, eventually defeating them was a big, big achievement on his part. But even though this happened... In most of Western Europe, he was also a well-respected diplomat. He traveled across most of the European continent and made a lot of friends along the way. He learned to sail, build ships, he founded the Russian Navy, spoke several languages, and built a European-style new capital for Russia that he named after St. Peter. And, and he weirdly got away with using all kinds of European versions of the name, like uh, St. Petersburg, which is, of course, German. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How I try to pronounce it in German, or, and this is going to be more difficult, Sint Petersburg, which is, well, my attempt at Dutch. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I apologize to all our <laughs> Dutch listeners. But why on earth am I talking about all this and him? Well, he was not very successful in all the reforms he initiated. For example, he could not get the support of the Russian Orthodox Church to adopt the Gregorian calendar. Russia had to wait until after the Bolshevik Revolution to do that. But his efforts to educate the Russian people and lead them out of their ancient and medieval superstitions makes him a bit of an early skeptic as well. Mm-hmm. Because the folk traditions of the time, just like in some other parts of the continent, were mostly fear-driven, with lots of stories about all kinds of monsters, you know, powerful, gigantic, or just simply unearthly creatures who are to be feared. And that was a way of control from a cultural point of view. And as a result of that, even normal deformities that happen from time to time with people were considered the result of the wrongdoings of bad spirits. Or when the predominant voice was that of the church, of course, the devil (laughs) was, Mm. it was all the work of the devil. So in Russian folk traditions, the Russian Orthodox Church and its teachings were very much intertwined with animist approaches to religion. So like, like all kinds of folk religions that were all mixed up. So this was the background for it. But Peter, remember, he was a polymath. He was a big fan of some of the French philosophers as well, including René Descartes. And probably as a result of all that influence that they had on him, he was known as a rationalist who tried to find a natural explanation behind all kinds of phenomena. So he became a great collector of all kinds of curiosities and um, and interesting stuff from nature. So he had quite a large natural history collection. And some of those he got straight from the collections of influential rich European dignitaries who had their own cabinets of curiosities as well. Even in countries where German was not spoken, they were usually called Kunstkammer or Wunderkammer. Mm-hmm. Is this a yeah, relatively <laughs> okay pronunciation? Okay. But uh, at the beginning, it was just a collection of all the things that nature throws at us. But some cabinets of curiosities were really collections of weird stuff. And he got really interested in all that. And some of these collections featured deformed human embryos as well. And he just had to get his hands on them. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> so... He he brought them to St. Petersburg, dozens of those deformed human embryos that were very well de- preserved, and he put them on public display so that people can learn about the ways nature tends to deviate from the normal. And I think that is fascinating. By that, he basically said, it's not some supernatural thing that we see in front of us. Not the works of the devil is just what occasionally happens in nature. And we have to live with that fact. And that was quite a new, a very, very enlightened idea at the time, especially at the time of Russia, but I would say also elsewhere in Europe. So he was a fan of European culture, but he was also a fan of rationalism. 
and yes, he he did overdo the demonstration a little bit <laughs> because yeah, <laughs> Sorry, he just... he did overdo everything. Basically, he didn't settle for for small changes mm-hmm. in any way. So he was a great collector of living and breathing deformed human beings as well. Ooh. So like dwarves and, and people with deformed limbs and stuff. And he employed some of them at his royal court, as well as showcased them in his own Kunstkamera, which is still there. It's right across from the Winter Palace on the opposite side of the River Neva. So whenever someone is in St. Petersburg, I know it's not it's not very popular a destination at, at the moment, huh. but it's amazing. It's an amazing city. But he also encouraged research into all those deformities so that we can understand the phenomena in depth and by understanding, we can get rid of all the supernatural thinking and that kind of uh, attitude towards them. And from a scientific point of view, he's the one to thank for the founding of the Russian Academy of Sciences and the St. Petersburg State University as well. Mm. So he really wanted to build up a scientific community of the country, and he did. So I think it's safe to say he was an early science enthusiast a bit of a skeptic as well, and an educator, among many other things that are not so nice, but I've graciously <laughs> left out of this uh, review. But the most important reason for me to talk about him now is that he died on the 8th of February, 1725. Hmm. Happy you know. death day. <laughs> Happy death day. Happy death day. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's <laughs> a little really. bit of a morbid turn of event. But, yeah, um, that's yeah. us. <laughs> Before we go deeper into that, I suggest we move on to the news. All right, people, science is hard. We all know this. You spend your time looking for data, and then what usually is the hard part is to understand it. You, you analyze it, how to analyze it. There's almost never just one way of doing that. You have to make decisions, and two scientists that analyzes the same data will almost certainly do it differently. And uh, this may, of course, influence what, what results you get to. It's tough. The most important thing is to try to get rid of your biases, to control for confounding factors, as they say. And that's science, and that's tricky. But this is, of course, only if you have data to look at at all. And that's not always easy to get. So if you can't get the data, what do you do then? What you don't do is make shit up. This apparently is something, <laughs> this is something nobody told Almas Heshmati, who is a professor of economics at Jönköping University in Sweden. He published a study called, quote, Green Innovations and Patents in OECD Countries, end quote. I'm sure that's a very valid area to study. As I understand it, it looks into the transition in the energy system in different countries, comparing them from an economic standpoint, something like that. And the report explicitly says that, quote, it uses balanced panel data covering 27 OECD countries' green innovation and patents activities observed during the period 1990 to 2018. End quote. A long quote, but it says balanced data. That's the important part. (laughs) It's just that there was one student who read the paper and had a few questions. So he contacted this professor, Almas Heshmati, or Heshmati, and asked him, where did, you, where did you get your data? Because something didn't really seem right. And the reply was pretty amazing. Heshmati told his student that in certain cases, there had been holes in the tables that he used. But what he had done then was just to use Excel's autofill functionality to fill in those what? gaps. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if people are not familiar with Excel or so, but what you can do is you can, if you have a table, you can just select three or four numbers and then you just pull down and Excel will randomly fill up with similar numbers. And Heshmati seems to have had to do that a lot. Sometimes also Excel put in negative numbers in this because it's just making shit up. And then he had to go back. And what he did then, if there was a negative number, he took the nearest positive number above and and, and put that in instead. (laughs) (laughs) So that's making up numbers. So you just create your own data. But it doesn't end with autofill 
because this student managed to persuade Heshmati to give him the actual data, the, the original Excel files, because they were not part of the study, but he, he got them sent to him. And he found that, in fact, for certain countries, Heshmati just copy-pasted numbers from one country to another. So the data for New Zealand had been copied from the Netherlands. And the ones in the for United States were copied from the United Kingdom. That's not the same country. They start with United, both of them, <laughs> but it's not the same country. So and um, neither of them are, them are united. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So the scientific method is uh, the best we know of, of course, uh, when it comes to understanding the world around us. But only if you do it right. Fortunately... Part of the method is to self-correct. And as we see in this case, the cheating was discovered. Having said that, this paper is still not yet retracted. What has happened has only been highlighted thanks to Retraction Watch, who, who blogged about this. But the, the paper is still out there and people may very well think that it's valid. I don't know. This is uh, crazy stuff. I'm very happy that we do have Retraction Watch because they're not just keeping a catalog of all the studies that are retracted. They are actively questioning these kinds of things. Of course, they can't retract the papers themselves, but they can contact the magazines or the, the scientific magazines where they were published and say, hey, we found this problem. Are you going to do anything about this? Hopefully, they will do something about this one because it was, uh, well, not science. And I'm, yeah. I think it's pretty important that they put it in the public domain as well. So yeah. they put it in front of us so that we can see that this is going on. That provides a little bit of a check on these researchers because it, it provides um, accountability. Well, at least I hope so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we can hope. We're going to continue to um, read Retraction Watch and, and see what they have to say, but it's very important to follow mm. these things. Yeah, something I have been following is a development about how the Catholic Church shaped Ireland's constitution to define the status of women and how that is hopefully oh, changing yeah. now. Isn't that outrageous? <laughs> yes, it's absolutely outrageous. Mm. The Irish constitution, believe it or not, is very influenced by Catholic doctrine and has defined women's roles as primarily within the home. It literally says, by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. It also says that mothers, quote, shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labor to the neglect of their duties in the home. Mm -hmm. um, yes. <laughs> yeah, so you can have any job you want as long as it's staying at home and making babies. That's your job. Yes. That's 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 the women's job, women's job, of course, and and you should be grateful that we give you this opportunity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's of course a big problem, because this is a decades, if not centuries old, but it's also highly influenced by the Catholic Church. For example, um, I've got a quote here found in the archives of the Archbishop of Dublin, John Charles McQuaid, who said. It is an unreality to imagine that the position of an electoral vote abolishes for either men or women through the diversity of social function. Nothing will change in law and fact of nature that woman's natural sphere is in the home. So that was from 1937, <laughs> this quote. But you can see that it is very close to the Catholic idea of what women should do. That means... It took 87 years for this referendum to be held, to potentially change the wording in the Irish constitution regarding women's roles. And this proposed change aims to replace the clause where they emphasize women's duties in the home, to acknowledge the wider concept of family care, but also to reflect a shift towards modernity and gender equality. So, yeah, that was waiting a long time. <laughs> yeah. I, it's amazing yeah. that they had this in the constitution. Yes. Crazy. It's, yeah, it, it, and there's so much hanging on to that with traditional gender roles, um, economic contribution, political participation. There's so much hanging on to that. I'm, I'm just glad that this will hopefully change soon, but it 
was waiting a bit over time. To say the least. It's really interesting how in some parts of Irish culture and Irish society, there is so much conservative attitude. But on the other hand, for example, they are among the most friendly towards immigrants among European countries. That's a very mm. interesting contrast, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why that might be. If someone wants to enlighten us about that, <laughs> do get in touch. Yep. Yes. Info at the ESP.eu. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so on to the UK. And I'd like to start with uh, stating that it's, it's probably not a surprise to either of you, and some of our listeners might know this about me as well, that I'm a great supporter of electromobility. No. Some even, some of my friends even um, accuse me of being religiously for <laughs> electric vehicles. <laughs> But I have to say that even though I'm very enthusiastic about them, mostly about the experience of driving an electric car, I'm also a skeptic. So my opinions... Even though I'm human, so I have my biases, but I try to base my arguments on the facts that I researched. And I know very well that a transition that is on the way, <laughs> on the way, see what I did there? <laughs> on the road. <laughs> has yeah. a multitude, yeah, yeah. That transition <laughs> has a multitude of aspects to consider before it can really be implemented. And the technological issues are huge, but they are being dealt with. They are not impossible to overcome. And the environmental impact is not as straightforwardly positive as many people try to make it look like. And when something has a political aspect as well, it's bound to be misinterpreted, misrepresented, and misled. But my greatest fear about the transition to electric vehicles is that the topic is now riddled with all kinds of mis- and disinformation. Some pieces of misinformation are coming from honest misunderstanding of facts and figures and a, a lack of full comprehension of the complexity of the issue. But some are deliberately spread falsehoods and distortions of facts. So that it looks like it's simply yet another fad, this electromobility thing, that will soon fade away the moment it loses political support. Market stakeholders and end users alike try to stop the transition using all kinds of arguments that don't necessarily hold water. And I'm not the only one saying this. It looks like the UK House of Lords Committee on Climate Change shares my concerns. Uh, it's not very often that we speak positively about the UK House of Lords <laughs> because <laughs> there is a lot of criticism towards them simply based on the fact that it's hereditary. It's not an elected position to being on the House of Lords. But never mind. They have a committee on climate change and they are calling for the government to take action against what they describe as deliberate or negligent spreading of misinformation published by UK press. In some cases, they argue it's state press or, well, public service that is that should be given and that kind of information should be provided clearly and not with distorted facts. So they claim there seems to be a concentrated effort to scare people away from going electric. And there might be something to this, because even though the UK is one of the largest adopters of the technology, as per overall number of electric vehicles in the country... Sales have flatlined as of late, but this can mean a lot of things. This can mean an acceptance of misinformation that scares people. It can mean a general lack of understanding of what driving an electric car entails, or the fact that the charging infrastructure doesn't seem to be keeping up with the demand. It's ridiculous how bad the infrastructure is compared to some other countries, especially when we consider things like Estonia, my, one of my favorites in that regard. <laughs> they have now, on average, fast charging station at every 50 kilometers of the national ra uh, road system, which is amazing. And it's been there for years. <laughs> And the UK is still not there. There are places where there are only about 40 or 50 public charging devices per 100,000 of population which is ridiculously low, especially with a million electric vehicles in the country already. And all this, while the UK is a country where it makes a lot of sense to go electric, mm. because their energy mix is pretty good compared to some other European countries when it comes to carbon dioxide emissions. Their current carbon intensity, which in this context is the amount of carbon dioxide emitted by kilowatt hour of electricity, 
and electric energy. So their current carbon intensity is currently at about 130 grams per kilowatt hour. And that belongs to the mid-lower segment among the world's countries. That's pretty good. That means that it makes a lot of sense to go electric. The question remains, if the government is making their decisions based on facts, things that I've listed now, or the wider hesitation of the public drives their actions, or the lack of actions, we don't know. They keep saying how much they spend on the transition to electromobility, but their tax policies and support for local infrastructure development is showing otherwise. So one thing is for sure, like all other challenges we all face when dealing with environmental issues, decarbonization will not happen before we can have a well-informed electorate with a clear general understanding of some of the issues, well protected from misinformation. But you might may argue that it might be a utopian idea, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, we need to get there. We need to get there. Because if policies are driven by public opinion, how we distort public opinion will definitely have an effect. And it seems like this is what's going on in the UK. Guess they should have stayed in uh, the EU, right? <laughs> Done what <laughs> many other e European countries are doing instead of trying to go Zolo. So um, we have the European Commission, of course. Yeah. And they are, of course, very instrumental <laughs> in creating policies and things like this for Europe. So we talk about, a lot about vaccines on this podcast because they are important, but also it's hard to get everybody to use them. Mostly we talk about COVID and measles vaccines, but some vaccines can actually prevent cancer. And we've talked about that as well, especially HPV vaccines that help protect against human papillomaviruses. But there's also vaccines against the hepatitis B virus or HBV, which can cause liver cancer. In fact, it's estimated that about 25% of those with chronic HBV eventually develop liver cancer. So that's a real threat. Very important. So back to the European Commission, they have unveiled a series of proposed measures designed to increase the uptake of these vaccines. This is part of, quote, Europe's beating cancer plan, end quote. And the new recommendations will be presented at the upcoming June meeting of the Council of the EU, which is currently chaired by Belgium. The new targets and recommendations that will be put forward include 95% target for hepatitis B vaccination for all infants, 90% target for HPV vaccination in girls, calls for concrete target also for HPV vaccination in boys, and then a new dashboard that will track vaccine uptake. A series of good targets and ideas there, including boys, is very important because even if it's less common, men can get cancer from HPV as well. And perhaps more importantly, and pretty obvious, it's generally men that spread the HPV virus to women. Not all the time, but very often. I'm also very happy to see the mention of a new system of tracking the vaccine uptake. I hope that this will also include other vaccines, not just the ones that can lead to cancer. Because very often I have found that the vaccine uptake statistics are very slow to get collected. And you can often just see numbers that are two or three years old. And having those numbers is very important because you want to base policies on as current data as possible. You can't wait three years before you know if people are vaccinated or not. So all in all, this is a good initiative and I hope it will pan out. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes it does feel so as you started when I finished my take on the UK, how they, how they handle this. Yeah, I sometimes it feels very good to be European because it's, um, it gives you a lot of hope about stuff. <laughs> yeah. At times, yeah, we yes. Can have, we can have some very good directions. Yeah, at times. Yeah, <laughs> not always. Unfortunately, not always, but uh, yeah, at times. Okay, but that brings us to the end of the news segment. And it means that we are about to find out who's been really wrong lately. Yes, and it is a recipient that we had before because it's the NHS. Back to the UK. Yes, Ooh. exactly. Back to the UK. <laughs> because in Kent, the NHS gave out 
a patient leaflet which promoted auriculotherapy and ear seats. They give you like a lot of information of what that is. Auriculotherapy is also known as ear acupuncture and is, it's a form of alternative medicine that wants to stimulate specific points on the ear to treat um, various conditions, as always. And it's based on the concept that the ear is a microsystem that reflects the entire body. And by stimulating these parts or points on the ear, it can influence the corresponding uh, parts of the body. We know that also from foot massage or foot acupuncture. Mm -hmm. and, and this with the ear mm. massage and the ear seeds, this is very much related to what we talked about last week. This yeah. accu-seeds that were on the Dragon's Den yes. at the BBC. And mm -hmm. they are used for pain management, addiction treatment, weight loss, stress reduction, and so on. And it can be through um, acupuncture needles, laser, um, acupressure massage, electrical stimulation, or ear seeds. And ear seeds are typically seeds from the vacaria plant, but they can also be metal or ceramics. And they are placed on these specific points on the ear, fixated there with a plaster or adhesive tape, and are left there for several days or even weeks. And this is also meant to help against chronic pain, stress, anxiety, and so on, you name it. And the thing is that this patient leaflet that promotes these therapies don't mention the lack of evidence supporting these therapies and that means that a this therapy goes against scientific principles and ethical considerations but also the nhs the national health service is doing a big disservice there they are publicly funded healthcare system of the united kingdom and they are providing healthcare services to uk residents but it's so problematic if they use tax money to support these ineffective treatments because A, it undermines the trust in evidence-based medicine, B, it wastes resources, and C, it could lead to patients to choose less effective or even harmful alternatives over proven medical interventions. So that's really not okay. And for that, the NHS receives this week's prize for being really wrong. Yeah, that's obvious. They shouldn't dabble in, in pseudoscience and alternative medicine. Mm -hmm. This is nonsense. Why do they do this? Yes. Yeah. Stop doing that, please. Do stuff that makes much more sense and science-based. So um, these are the things that uh, we are looking when it comes to Word of the Week. We try to find interesting expressions or words from a skeptical and scientific point of view from different languages. So I believe, Pontus, you brought us a Word of the Week for this episode. Yes, I did. I found a fun one. So, as usual, I will not tell you what language this is. I will just run a recording of this word. It's one word this week and uh, see what you think of it. It goes like this. <laughs> it's a bit of a bad recording. I think I'll try it again. <laughs> it's more <laughs> like... <laughs> Bolwevni. Mm -hmm. There's an N at mm -hmm. the end there, but it, I think it's pronounced more like a V. So, Bolwevni. Any ideas what kind of a language this is? I can tell you it's European because that's the podcast we're on. But uh, what else? Wild guesses. Oh. Romanian. Yeah, if I didn't know, because, because I, <laughs> I checked it out, so I know it already. But I think it sounds, so I wouldn't have guessed. Mm -hmm. uh, it sounded like something of Gaelic origin or something. Yeah, could have been. Uh, could me. have been. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. It's not Romanian, uh, Annika. It is, in fact, Icelandic. Oh, mm. Bolrevni. Did you check also what it means, Andras, or can you guess? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> you checked. Okay, so you're out. You're not participating in the game, Annika. What do you think? Oh, I've no idea because I, with Icelandic, I also can't back to go, can't go no. back to any Latin rules. I don't That's know. That's true. An oxen, an animal. Yeah. Okay. Good try, but no, no. It is con it's combined by, of two different other words. One, the first part is bola, and the last part is evni. And bola is related to ball, oh. actually. 
So it's a, some sort of ball. In this case, it's translated as bubble, but that doesn't help you very much. Evni, I as a Swede can see where that comes from, but that's hard because it's not in any other. I will just tell you, it means vaccine. Oh, and how wow. do you get from that, from ball and Evni to vaccine? Well, bola actually means smallpox. And it comes from the same word as ball. Oh, wow. Because that's what you get on your skin if you have smallpox. You've got lots of yeah. bubbles. Yeah. So uh, that's the first part. The last part means material or substance. So evni, in Sweden, you have the word emne, which is related to evni. And that means material or substance. Mm. So... Mm-hmm. Vaccines in Icelandic is actually translatable into smallpox substance. That's what they call vaccines. That's so it's small, cool. It's a smallpox substance. So it's basically a historically very. Yes. It's a, very, a historically very accurate word. Yeah, it's it's from the old uh, inoculations where you took cowpox pus and put that into people's bodies to stop them from having smallpox. And then it became known as wow. small, smallpox substance or boluevni. It's amazing. <laughs> so that's, Thank yeah, you for I, finding I that. Icelandic. I don't know much Icelandic. It's related to Swedish, of course. But it's so different that even if I read it, I can only understand maybe every fifth or sixth word. And it, I can't make sense of a sentence. But I do know that Icelandic is very, very literal. And what I mean, what I mean is that they don't want to import any fancy words from Latin or whatever, vaccine, that's not for them. They just take words that they already have in the language and they make up, <laughs> put them together to describe something that is a new phenomenon. That's so cool. Uh, well, German does uh, that at times too, that we, we don't say dentist, we say tooth doctor, zahnarzt. Yeah. But mm. um but it doesn't like we only love our compound nouns. And you end up with ridiculously long words. Yes, we just <laughs> yes, exactly. We just put nouns together and create like these ridiculously long compound nouns, but this is actually creating a new word by putting words together. So this is so creative and so cool. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's really cool. That there was a time uh, when Hungarian was going through that phase as well and that was deliberate. Like that was a deliberate effort to make Hungarian usable for things like science as well. Because mm-hmm. there we didn't have words and that was at around the time of the enlightenment the enlightenment because they realized that science is on the rise but we don't have words to explain a thing a couple of things but they yeah. came up with ridiculously long words in hungarian as well like train engine that was called a goosebefogesatitovalokodunts of course and that's that is like one word putting together <laughs> so explaining how it works basically if you translate it back and make an english version of that long compound word what would it sound like it would sound like a thing that is being pushed forward by steam okay so that all of that is in that long that word. is one word yeah it's in la one one long <laughs> word. so obviously cool. it didn't it didn't, <laughs> it didn't catch on no. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. All right. But in yeah. Icelandic, Bula Evni did catch on and it now means vaccines. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you very much for that, Pontus. Thank you, Pontus. Thank you. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of the show, uh, which is usually marked by a quote. Yes. And this week's quote is by Hans Rösling. I hope I pronounced that correctly, Pontus. It's Hans Rösling. Hans Rösling. Yes. Hans Ruslin, who was a Swedish physician, academic and public speaker and uh, died much too young. He was also a professor of international health at Karolinska Institute and uh, wrote wonderful books, for example, uh, Factfulness. Well, that's, mm. This is basically the main book I know him for. Mm-hmm. And he said, let the data set change your mindset, end quote. Let the data set change your mindset. Do you hear that? Don't do it the other way around. Don't make up the data to suit your mindset. 
to let the data set decide. That's yes. very fitting for this episode, actually. And it works also really well because he died on 7th of February 2017, which is also this week, of course. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very tragic yeah. to see him. I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, long ago, before he died, of course, we reached out to him and tried to get him to, on the show for an interview. We never got an, a reply, and uh, several months later, we heard that he had died. So, I think he, there would be a would have been a good chance for him to be on the show, but of course, this was not public knowledge at the time. But of course, he was busy with other stuff at the time. So, too bad, too bad. Mm -hmm. I did see him yeah, once, yeah. though. Uh, I didn't talk to him, but he was a speaker at the European Skeptics Congress in Stockholm 2013. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't there. No, me neither. <laughs> Which I regret very much. Uh, but uh, fortunately, he left a lot of things to think about behind. So, yep. uh, yeah, um, gives us a lot of food for thought. All right. But that really concludes our show for this week. I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Many, many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Vislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast.eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Okay, Heysan Heysan. Let's do it. I'll do it from Heysan Heysan, and I can cut uh, okay. away everything in between. Heysan Heysan. Oh, sorry, that's too much. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> now you're enjoying your volume, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Hepatitis. Hepatitis. Vislat. Vislat indeed. <laughs>